out and focus also on the people where we like to give it to. So it is a focus on a feeling. In the loving kindness contemplation, I will say a statement and again we will go inside of ourselves to find out whether we have any personal relationship to this statement and then how we can change it into the positive, how we can actually work with this. So it isn't so much the focus, the one-pointed focus of the feeling, but it is an inner realization of what goes on within oneself and how we can alter it or connect to it. Again, the contemplation is for insight. The meditation is for calm, whereas the loving-kindness meditation also is very <coughs> conducive to calm and very conducive to that inner feeling of harmony, whereas the contemplation for insight. Again, I will say it and you repeat after me and then I will say something about it to help with the contemplation. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now, please repeat after me. May I be free from enmity. What we have to do here is to inquire into ourselves whether we have any enmity, have had, are still having, are prone to have it. Feelings of dislike, of rejection, of ill will towards ourselves and others. And if so, whether they are actually conducive to our own happiness and peace. And then when we realize they might not be, to introspect what to do, how to substitute, how to change. To contemplate that means to see within oneself whether there is a reality to this statement and whether we can actualize the opposite and how we would go about it. It's a thought process which also connects to a definite feeling about it.
May I be free from hurtfulness. Again, we inquire within ourselves whether we have hurt others physically or emotionally and also whether we are prone to hurt ourselves. And we try to ascertain the cause and see what it's embedded in this hurtfulness and also inquire into the possibility of change. May I be free from troubles of mind and body. Now here we inquire into ourselves how these troubles occur and whether we can actually do something about it. It's the attention and lovingness towards ourselves which of course helps others because if we have troubles we can be a burden to others. So we look at anything that may be troubling us physical or mental or emotional and see how did it come about? What can I do about it? look to see whether one can love oneself sufficiently to try and have as few troubles as possible.
may I be able to protect my own happiness. Here the first inquiry goes towards finding out what constitutes my happiness. This is not so easy to ascertain. And then when we have found what is it that really gives me happiness, how do I protect it? May beings everywhere be free from enmity. Now we have that opportunity to wish the same for others that we try to actualize within ourselves. And if we have found a way to be free from enmity, Obviously, we would make up our mind to help others with that. But only if we know how to do it for ourselves. Otherwise, it is a wish and a thought direction that there may be less fear and worry amongst people because of eliminating aggression.
or minimizing it. But it's the aggression in our own heart that has to be addressed first. May beings everywhere be free from hurtfulness. Again, the same thing applies, that we're wishing and hoping it for others. But only if we ourselves have found a way out of it, can we actually help others to minimize or eliminate it. But at least we can direct our wishes this way so that there may be more good thoughts in the universe. May beings everywhere 
be free from troubles of mind and body. If we sincerely wish this for other beings, surely we will not make any trouble for anyone. We cannot take away other people's troubles, but at least we don't have to add to them. And if we know way out of the trouble, we will most surely share it. May all beings be able to protect their own happiness. Again, if this is our wish for others, we will certainly do nothing ourselves to stop other people's happiness. to create unhappiness for anyone. We will try and help others to find happiness. If we use these thoughts in our daily lives, we will generate peacefulness which is sorely needed.
I mentioned yesterday already that meditation should not stand on its own in order to be truly meaningful, but should be embedded in a whole spiritual path and a spiritual life. And if we want to do that, we have certain necessary aspects which have to be connected to meditation. And the first one is what in Pali is called sila. The meditation is the second one of the three items or the three divisions of the teaching. The three divisions of the teaching are sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is the first one, moral conduct. The second one, samadhi, concentration. And panya, the third one, wisdom insight. So the other two you might call calm and insight. But without the base of a certain way of life, conducting oneself in a certain way, not where we live, and not what jobs we have other than their wrong livelihoods and not anything connected to those things but the conduct that we actually have has a great significance and is in essence the base and foundation on which we can build now sometimes this has been misunderstood to mean that we have to first have perfect conduct before we can start to meditate, which is of course quite wrong thinking because our meditation will also help us to have better conduct. The two work together in the same way with calm and insight. The calm helps us to have insight, the insight helps us to have calm. So all three divisions of the teaching work together, but they have to be attended to, all three. And with the moral conduct that is basic to a meditator's life, also comes another thing, namely the confidence in the path or the teaching. That confidence in the path or the teaching has to be a matter of the heart and mind. Now all of us have both aspects. We have our intellect, rational and logical thinking, little more, little less, whatever anybody has, and we have the heart that feels. We all have both. And we often call the rational logical thinking the male element and the feeling, the compassion, the nurturing, the female element. But quite apart from what kind of body we have, we all have both in us. And whichever side of us has been overextended we have to now develop the other. It's only when we're balanced with both that we can actually have a successful spiritual practice. Now, it, again, it doesn't mean that we first have to get balanced and then we can start. No, 
we start in order to balance. If our life has been very much lived according to rational logical thinking and we have always thought that we can figure out what we're going to do, it's time that our feeling processes are more attended to and that we get more in connection with that and have a clearer view of what it means because feeling we have, it's just a matter of knowing about it. If we have always been working with our emotions up and down in all directions, it's time we started thinking about it a little rationally. Everybody needs to have both sides developed. Now the same goes for the teaching. The first thing that's necessary is that we have to understand what goes on. If we don't understand what the teaching is all about, the teaching that we receive, then our mind, our rational aspect, can't relate to it. But if we don't love it, and are not devoted to it, don't have confidence in it, don't revere it, our heart is not engaged. And again, it's only half a practice. I like to compare it to a relationship one has with another person. If you have a relationship with another person and you understand that person very well, it's all very clear what that person is on about, but there's no love. That relationship is doomed from the start. If you have love for the other person but don't understand the other one at all, you've got a little better chance but eventually it's also going to break up. It can't live up to the expectation. Both have to happen. We've got to understand and love. When I've been talking to you about several aspects of insight and understanding, that's when your mind, your rational mind is engaged and your logical thinking can help you and make it possible to understand what this teaching is all about. But there's something more needed. That alone does not suffice. It will certainly not keep you on the path, any path. In fact, it is only a beginning, sometimes for reading books and sometimes for looking in all directions. What is needed is the love element. And the love element comes when one recognizes the greatness that must have been in this teacher who is, has been able to impart a guideline and a direction to us which two and a half thousand years later, after his death, is still as clear as it was when he said it, which is still usable and workable and has given happiness and peace to thousands, probably millions of people, and is able and is available for us, and we are actually able to follow it little by little, step by step. If gratitude does not arise in the heart for that, our heart is dead. We're not using it. 
there has to be gratitude. The other thing that has to come in order to make this a viable, living possibility has to be reverence for something so great which is available, something which is actually possible to eliminate all dukkha. Because that's what the Buddha promised. There's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. Doesn't mean he teaches suffering, just teaches us that it's there, and that there's an end to it, but only if we follow the path. The reverence for the greatness of that mind and for the fact that the enlightenment factor, the enlightenment consciousness exists, doesn't mean that that historical person, which was Siddhartha Gautama, exists. is long gone. But the enlightenment consciousness exists and we can connect to it if we are willing to do the work. It doesn't come by itself. We have to work, but it's possible. It can be compared to the electrical outlet in the wall that is there all the time. But if we don't know that we actually have that connection and don't plug into it, that outlet is useless for us. The outlet is there. So the first thing is gratitude. Now the Buddha said that there are three rarities in the world. One is the arising of a Buddha. The second is a person that will do a kindness without expecting any return. And the third one is a person who is grateful. So if it's that rare to have gratitude, as rare as the arising of a Buddha, you can see that it's something that we need to develop in ourselves. We are very happy to take whatever is offered, whatever is going. How happy are we to give? Gratitude means giving something, giving one's heart. Without that, the spiritual path is dead. It's a dead duck. It doesn't feel anything. It's nothing. It's dry as dust. And what happens? It's all very interesting. And next week, something much more interesting comes along. And then next week, something else again. It's got to be a heart connection. And when we make that heart connection, then, of course, something happens then there's a feeling of knowing the way out of problems of suffering. Even though we may not be able to do it just yet, but it's there. First step, gratitude. Second step, reverence. And the third one follows quite naturally, and that's devotion. In the Western society, these three qualities are extremely rare. Gratitude is something which is rare in human beings, but reverence and devotion sounds terribly old-fashioned, doesn't it? It's been going for a long time. 
And if we don't make it go again, we're missing out on something beautiful. These are inner states of being which open the heart to the point where love becomes much easier. Loving others without wanting something from them. So reverence for the greatness that is existing and has been existing and is still available to us and then the devotion to that out of the love that arises from the gratitude and the reverence. The devotion it doesn't mean that one has to say anything or do anything in particular. It's a feeling. It's a feeling of connectedness. And only then will the meditation really flourish. Because heart and mind have to be engaged. We can't do it with the mind. Look at all the things we have learned in this lifetime. And what has it done for us, <coughs> other than making us able to earn a living and being a good conversationalist. Nothing else. It doesn't provide happiness and peace. It's got to be the heart connection. And that's something that we can't learn in the existing institutions which are so manifold and extremely good for our minds we have to learn that on our own. The expression that we give on this path to our gratitude, devotion and reverence is what we call taking refuge. And I'm explaining it this morning to you, the refuge and also the precepts, the moral conduct, because those of you who like, those of you who want, or who have done it dozens of times before, will have the opportunity this afternoon to express that again. We'll do it in a little ceremony together. Those of you who don't want to do it are perfectly at liberty not to do it. There's nobody requesting anyone to do this but I'd like to explain it. And I'd like to explain to you the benefits of it. Taking refuge is a term, a term of plugging in to that wall socket of three-pronged Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Just like our electric wall sockets have three prongs. Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Now, what does that mean for us who were most of us, not all of us here, but most of us, only heard of that maybe two days ago or two years ago or two weeks ago, whatever it may be. Buddha does not necessarily mean that person, although that is also part of it the person who was able to give us the teaching. But far more importantly, it means the enlightenment factor 
the factor of complete purity, of total understanding and compassion, which exists in the world and in every one of us. It is something that we can find within. We don't have to become it. We are already it, but we can't get at it. It's a matter, again, of letting go. The whole of the spiritual path is a path of letting go. In this case, letting go of all the coverings that cover our heart. The enlightenment factor which exists in all of us and which exists in the world, if we take refuge in that, it is a protection. It is a protection from the difficulties which we so often assume to be real. They seem to be so solid, everlasting, and seem to have a quality of hurtfulness for us. But if we recognize the fact that exactly the opposite exists, all we have to do is get to our own purity, we have a protection from that wrong belief that the difficulties are something to hurt us. The difficulties which we experience in life are something to teach us and not to hurt us. And when we see it that way and have utter devotion and confidence in the greatest ideal that there is, namely total purity, then our mind has already a way of transcending the difficult path parts of life. A heart that can't open is a heart that can't love. If we can't have devotion, we can't love ourselves and we can't love others. It's all one and the same action. As long as we discriminate between that which we can love and that which we can't love, we don't have love. Because love is a total heart quality and not one that gets divided into little cubicles where we have those that we can love and then in other cubicles those that we can't. This is how we usually do it. But it doesn't help us on this path, <coughs> nor does it help us to meditate. The Dhamma that we take refuge in is the most important part of this three-pronged approach because the Dhamma is the teaching. But it isn't words and concepts. They are only the finger pointing to the moon. They are not the moon itself. The Dhamma is sun or moon going, arising in our own heart and mind and shining therein. So the Dhamma is first that which we learn, then that what we practice, and then what we are. The Buddha gave quite a lengthy discourse 
on how to treat teaching. And briefly, it is so. What we hear, we have to remember. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Try it tomorrow. And after having remembered it, we have to actually do it. That sounds even simpler. Well, try that day after tomorrow. That's even more difficult. And having done some of it, and the Buddha was a great realist, he didn't expect us to do all of it all at once, having done some of it, to check back whether there's any change in us. In other words, evaluate to see whether we've done it properly. And then when we have done it properly and have evaluated, then gain new confidence in our ability. Remembering and doing and evaluating these three steps and then gaining more confidence. The Buddha also said this <coughs> on a very um, specific occasion, namely when one of his monks had become very ill and was lying in bed moaning and groaning and crying. And the other monks went up to him and said, why are you moaning and groaning and crying? We know you're ill, but it's not that bad, is it? And he said, no, I'm not moaning and groaning because of that. I'm doing it because I'm now lying in bed sick. I can't see the Buddha. So the monk said, oh, well, that's easily fixed. We'll tell him about it, and we're sure he'll come and visit you. So sure enough, they told him, and the Buddha came and visited this monk. So immediately he stopped his moaning and growing and was very happy and smiling. And the Buddha said, don't be like that. Whoever sees me, the Buddha, sees the Dhamma. Whoever sees the Dhamma, sees me. So the monk understood that and was no longer so attached to the teacher. The guru principle. When we see the Dhamma, seeing means in this case in seeing, the inner vision of that which is pure and true, completely true as the universal truth manifested by ourselves, then we see Buddha, enlightenment. Buddha is not a name. It means the awakened one, the enlightened one. And when we would have been lucky enough to have seen the Buddha, and who knows, we may have been there and not listened properly, then all we see is the Dhamma. We don't need to see the person. We need to see only the teaching. So therefore, when the Buddha died, was dying on his deathbed and was asked by Ananda, his faithful attendant and cousin, who should now be their teacher when he was leaving them. He said, let the Dhamma be your guide, the teaching. So this, and it doesn't just mean that it has to be the books 
which we have, which contain the Buddha's teaching or all the books written about them, as we have lying on the table there, but it means that within ourselves we carry it. We've just got to get at it. It's the inner vision of things as they really are. In Pali that's called Yata Bhutta Jnana Dasana, knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Knowledge is that which can be imparted. I can tell you things about the teaching. That's a knowledge you can get, you can get out of books. But the vision is what you have yourself within. And to take refuge in that, in both aspects, in that which can be imparted and is of the highest good, is the ideal for humanity's well-being and that which we carry within, which is our inner light, the source of well-being, which everybody knows and feels they have within and which everybody yearns to touch upon and tries to do it in so many wrong ways, that is also the Dhamma. We try to get to that state within us and all yearn to get there by having a love, some person we can love, by having something wonderful to do, by having interesting experiences, none of that is any good. They are all very nice, but they don't get to that inner core. The inner core we've got, only we ourselves can touch it through our heart and mind. Nothing outside of us can touch it. Not another person, not another experience, not the feeling for one other person that too will not touch it because the feeling has to be one of universality and totality. Because the Dhamma, this spark within us, this light within us, as whichever way you like to call it, is one of totality. We all have it. It isn't separate and individual. So we can get there and taking refuge in it using it as our protection and our highest goal gives that at least a guideline where we're going. We may not come to the final goal in this life, but we're certainly going to make sufficient steps to make it worthwhile. And having that protection gives a feeling of security a kind of security that cannot be bought. It's impossible to get it any other way. People are perishable and so are all sorts of material goods. The final goal of the Buddha's teaching is imperishable and this is where this leads to. And the third refuge is the Sangha. Now that too is totally misunderstood in the West, and maybe not so much here, but certainly in America, 
In America, Sangha are all those people who cross their legs and sit on a pillow. That's not what's meant. To take refuge in those would be a bit absurd because they are about as enlightened as we are ourselves. Sangha in this case, where we take refuge, means those people who actually became totally pure, totally enlightened. Whether they wore robes or sat on a pillow or wore white clothes or colored clothes makes absolutely no difference. It is possible to have complete purity, total enlightenment in whatever kind of outfit one runs around in. And the refuge we take in those means that we are connecting to them. Again, that's a three-pronged um, electrical socket that we are connecting to those people, whether we know them or not know them or know of them, doesn't matter. Their strengths, their enlightenment strengths, exist. If that sort of thing was not available in, un in the universe, we long ago would have perished because there's so much evil also. And if there was only the evil, we would long be gone. But the other side exists, of course. So we are connecting to them, to that enlightenment factor that exists, that they have manifested in themselves. And also, we are connecting to our possibility and ability to do the same. If we don't have that kind of higher aspiration, our aspirations will always remain extremely earthbound and will not provide what every human heart really wants. Because that what the world provides is of the world and that what is of the world can never really satisfy spiritual aspirations. That's got to be of the spirit. So we have those three refuges, protections, which can remind us over and over again that this is where we're going, this is what we want to do, this is where real happiness and peace lies. We can start wherever we're at. One of the things about starting wherever we're at is also a very important point. I like to make it. You know that if you look in your Revidex and you're looking for somebody's address, you've got to first find the street corner that you are actually parked at. Otherwise, you don't know how to get there. It's no use looking in on that map and saying, ah, oh, yes, that's where this person lives, but you don't know where you have your car. It's the same on the spiritual path. Oh, yes, very nice. Nibbana sounds great. But where am I at? Only when I know exactly the street corner I'm sitting at, the difficulties I have, and the abilities I have also to get off that corner, then can I start 
working. So it is again a matter of introspection. And it doesn't matter at all where we're at, as long as we know it. And have that feeling that it's a worthwhile pathway to go along there. This is one part of the heart connection. Now the other part of this connection that we make is our personal commitment to a certain kind of conduct. This commitment is of course individual. If we want to make it, that's fine. If we want to make only half of it, that's fine, or quarter or three quarters or whatever. It's everybody's choice. And this commitment of a certain conduct concerns the five precepts. Those of you who've been connected to Buddhism for some time know them by heart, probably in Pali and English, or even more languages, Chinese, Malayan, whatever other languages are going, German in my case. But that's not enough. I'll tell you the precepts, what we have to abstain from. But there is something else which is just as important or more important actually than just abstaining from five things. And that is developing their opposites. And this is our foundation for heart connection. And that's our foundation for a life which goes in the direction of transcending the marketplace mentality. The marketplace mentality is the one we all know. We go shopping with it. What else can we do? That's the way you want to go shopping. And the more often one goes shopping, the more marketplace mentality one has. And the more of that stuff one does, the more one is caught in it. The less of that stuff one does, the easier it is to remember that there is a different consciousness. And we can get to that different consciousness. Our meditation has to be our medium for that. It has to be through the means of meditation. Um, some people actually can reach a different level of consciousness through means which are not necessarily called meditation, but that's um, exceptions. It sometimes can be done by artists to a certain degree because they get so absorbed that the marketplace mentality falls away from them. I think we all know what the one consciousness and the other consciousness is like. I don't think I have to say anything about marketplace mentality because we all know what that's like. We're living with it. It's the duality. The uh, good and bad, yours and mine, tomorrow and yesterday, I'll have it, I'll get rid of it, and so on. I want it, I don't want it. But we also know the other. Maybe having a new baby, watching a beautiful sunset, falling in love, 
that changes the consciousness for that time momentarily for a little while and we know what that's like if we actually stay on a spiritual path and do less and less of those things which the world consists of of course we have to fulfill our obligations that's clear it is not impossible to have the other consciousness with us constantly the um, the precepts which ask us to abstain from certain unwholesome actions are a minimum prescription for a decent human life and in order to maximize that prescription we start cultivating the opposite now the first one is not to kill it's no different from Christianity and that it's constantly being broken nobody has a monopoly on that everybody does it now not to kill includes small beings that it includes people I mean that goes without saying doesn't it and that we're constantly breaking that that also goes without saying but it includes small beings tiny little ones if we know that they're there if we can actually see them if we actually know that they're there but there's far more to this first one than not to kill it means to create within oneself harmlessness it means to create within oneself non-aggression peacefulness and loving-kindness now we've done loving-kindness meditation here that's only the tip of the iceberg of course particularly in such a short period as this weekend is but at least it shows the general direction <clears throat> but it is a daily occupation under all circumstances we don't have to come to a meditation course to develop loving-kindness we might have to come to be reminded of it but not to develop it that we can do from morning till night wherever we are whoever we are whatever we contact I don't think there's anyone who doesn't have human contact during the day some of us maybe a lot of it some of it maybe not so much but there's always some contact that's the time to develop it we're only too ready not to like the people that we come into contact with or to be totally indifferent towards them we're just polite because it's expected society wants that <coughs> and we're glad when they're gone again so we can have our peace and quiet 
we also very often dislike their mannerisms, we dislike their ideas, their viewpoints, we dislike the way they um, present themselves, because obviously everybody presents him or herself with all the problems and difficulties that we carry inside, whether we mention them or not makes no difference at all. They all come out in the way we speak, look, hold ourselves, react, and so on. So we're quite willing to dislike all that. We need to change that to a willingness to love it all. Difficult, definitely difficult. But the easy things in life have never amounted to any greatness. It's only the difficult things that produce any kind of result. Studying medicine or engineering or any kind of subject at the uni isn't all that easy either. But it at least produces a result which is tangible. I can get that diploma into my hand and I can make money with it. But developing love in one's heart, one doesn't get a diploma at all, nothing at all. There's nothing tangible to be found. And that's why it's not in such um, great demand to do this. But it's at least as difficult as studying for a medicine degree. I haven't studied for a medicine degree. I'm not quite sure how difficult that is. But I think getting the heart to love is more difficult. <coughs> Nobody gives us a diploma. We can't make a living with it. That's why very few people do it. Nothing to show for it. Well, I tell you what's there to show for it. Inner peace. Inner peace that is very hard to break. It's only, of course, the enlightened person that never has the inner peacefulness broken. And developing one's love in one's heart does not mean enlightenment. So the peace is breakable, but very difficult. It means a foundation of being which is solid means a foundation of being which has no fear. Most of our fears, not all of them, but most of our fears go in the direction that we may be tempted to react extremely unpleasantly and thereby not only lose our own peace of mind completely but also be blamed by others. And people who have that fear, and many people do, have a tendency to either avoid people or try to be indifferent to them so that their emotions aren't being touched. The totally unsatisfactory way of living because one feels like a spectator. One is not a participant. Now this is one of the fears which completely goes, of course, because when we have love in our heart for whatever there is and whoever there is, we don't have any fear of reacting unfavorably. This kind of work on oneself 
is the opposite of not killing, of killing living beings. It is the developing the opposite. And it is a far more far-reaching quality than just to avoid killing. Now, obviously, we've got to start with that because not killing even small beings is also love and compassion. They want their life just as much as we do. But then, when we develop ourselves further, it goes into that daily activity of checking out our own negativities and substituting with something else. At first it may seem tedious to be watching oneself all the time. But we always watch something. Very often it's TV. <laughs> and that is certainly not conducive to peace and happiness. It's conducive to the opposite. So we might as well watch ourselves. It's easily as interesting, if not more so, and far more productive. And after having become used to doing it, it's not tedious. It's fascinating. Because we can recognize quite easily that whatever we find within ourselves, that exists everywhere. We are no, nobody special. We are just the way everybody else is. It's a totality of humanity and we're all laboring under the same delusion and with the same difficulties in heart and mind. And at least that much we learn that when we are confronted with others we know that we're actually looking into a mirror. <coughs> it's a very interesting mirror because we can only see in a mirror what is actually in front of the mirror. Now, if I stand in front of a mirror, I cannot see a blue dress. I have to see this orangey colored thing. That's, that's what's there, so I can see it in the mirror. Now, what I see in other people is only what I've got myself. Otherwise, I couldn't see it. That's why we say, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. A Buddha is enlightened. We wouldn't recognize it. We don't know what it's like. We have no way of relating to it. We may be guessing, oh yeah, that person must be enlightened. Always looks very happy. <laughs> How do we know that that's what enlightenment means? Or that person must be totally unenlightened. Saw him cry the other day. I mean, how do we know? We don't know what's enlightenment or unenlightenment. But we do know when somebody gets angry. We know very well what that's like. Because we ourselves get angry. We also know when another person is trying to be loving because we've tried to be the same. Whatever we see, that's what we've got. We can also see what we used to have and recognize it for that. But what we haven't got, we'll never see. So if we see another person say, oh, I don't like him, he's always so sarcastic, 
Well, we can be sure that we know what it's like to be sarcastic. Otherwise, we wouldn't even recognize it. So we have actually a great chance to use all our encounters as a mirror image and thereby use them productively by learning to love that what we know in ourselves, to love that in the other person too. It's a daily work, a constant work in all our waking hours, but it brings almost immediate results. Don't take my word for it. The only thing to do is to try it out over and over and over. Totally immaterial whether somebody else is nice and friendly. If you're waiting for somebody else to be nice and friendly, that takes far too much time till you find somebody. Start immediately. The second precept says not to take anything that's not given. Which means not to take something that doesn't belong to us. Now that's not just a bank robbery. That's also being very meticulous with other people's belongings not to take even the smallest thing. But the opposite of that is generosity. And that's something we need to learn. The giving. The opposite of taking. Instead of wanting to get, wanting to give. Now wanting to get is inbred in the marketplace mentality. That's what the marketplace is for. You put on the highest price that you can possibly get for whatever merchandise you have for sale. And this marketplace mentality is imbued in us and we live with it and we don't even know we have it until it's pointed out. And it's the same in all matters, not just when we sell or buy something. If we want to get something from the meditation, we have an expectation and we won't be able to meditate. We want to get something. What we need to do is to let go, to give ourselves to the meditation subject, fall into it, be it, and not try to get something out of it. Even in such a matter, the giving is more important than the getting. Generosity is on a very mundane level, first of all. It means that we no longer think that we can only be happy if we have as much as possible and keep as much as possible, but that we would be very happy if we can actually share and make someone else happy. <coughs> it reduces our egocentricity somewhat and thereby makes a bit of a dent into our ego illusion. The ego illusion which is the underlying factor of every problem that exists in the world. I haven't really 
um, addressed it very much because the time element is much too short here to address this. I've mentioned it here and there. But everything that we want to get is based on that ego illusion because this is me and I want to be secure and safe and have as much as I can and keep it as long as I possibly can. But in reality, we're all in this together. And if one person is unhappy, none of us would be very happy. Imagine there's one sitting somebody there in the middle, crying their eyes out, sobbing, being totally upset about something. Well, we wouldn't feel very happy, would we? They're fighting a war miles away from us. Well, certainly we're not happy, are we? We're not fighting at the moment. They're doing it. But we're not happy about it. We can only have peace and happiness if everybody else has it too. Now, obviously, no single one of us can make the world happy. But we can start somewhere. And we start somewhere by learning to have that togetherness wherever we can reach that togetherness through our own generosity. Generosity means, in the first instance, giving away things, giving away money, so that others can also have the benefit of that. It also means giving away our skills, our time, our energy. It means giving away our love and compassion. It gives means that we can listen to others, that we have time and a feeling for others, and are not only concerned with our own problems. The less we are concerned with our own problems, the less they get. If we don't pay attention to them, they disappear. There's a very nice monk in Sri Lanka who's 78 years old, and uh, when I was there last month, I met him again and asked him, how's your health, sir? And he said, I have no time to be sick. He's constantly on the go, giving lectures, Dhamma talks, teaching, and so forth. He has no time for this sort of thing. So he's not concerned with his own problems. We can try this out and see that generosity, giving, brings immediate results, good results, by checking out how we feel. We have a feeling of happiness and accomplishment. We have a feeling of connectedness with someone else. We have a feeling of being satisfied with our own action. So we have an immediate karma resultant. We often think, those of us who have looked at karma and its resultants, that that has something to do with past lives and future lives. Well, past lives certainly, but only to a limited extent. Most of it is happening right now. 
because most of our actions and intentions are small. We don't do huge things every day in our lives. So the resultants are also small and happen immediately. A feeling of happiness, feeling of contentment, or a feeling of regret, a feeling of remorse, a feeling of worry, if it was negative, what we did or said. The Buddha compared generosity to three kinds. The generosity of a beggar, generosity of a friend, generosity of a king. The generosity of a beggar is when we give away the stuff we don't want anyway. Like our old sweaters or stuff like that. That only cluttering up the cupboards. The friend who shares. And the king who gives away more than he keeps. A kingly generosity. Very rare. People like that usually become famous. But at least we can be friends. But we'll only have that attitude if we actually realize that the separation that we have made between ourselves is the cause for our alienation. We feel alienated from other people and even from nature and that is due because to the fact that we feel separated from it but in reality there's only one creation and we're all part of it and the less we worry about our own security and the more giving we are, the more secure we become within ourselves. It's a law of nature which we can see, for instance, when we give love. The more love we give, the more we have. Law of nature. Same applies to everything else. But people don't like to believe it because it sounds dangerous. If I give away more, how come I get more? But that is the way it works. If there is a trickle of water from a well or a spring, all we get is a tiny little creek. But if there is a waterfall, we get a complete stream. And the same with this. It's something that we can educate ourselves in and we need to because it is the basis, the foundation for our conduct. The conduct which is then remorseless, no regrets, no personal blame, something that we can look back upon with not only equanimity but also happiness, something we can look back upon with joy and that inner joy is needed for meditation. The one who has inner joy to start out with is the one who can meditate. The one who has problems to solve solves problems rather than meditate. Our third precept 
is to abstain from sexual misconduct. The opposite is to be faithful, to be trustworthy, to be reliable. And that applies to all our actions and all our commitments and all our relationships. Faithfulness to our friends, reliability to actually do what we've promised, to be on hand when help is needed. That goes in both ways. That's generosity and reliability. To be trustworthy, that if somebody asks us to do something, we'll definitely do it, and we'll do it right. We will look after other people's matters, even with more interest than our, our own. To be a person who can be relied upon is also <coughs> a factor in our own inner peacefulness because we know that we can rely on ourselves. We don't have to worry whether we're actually going to do this or that. We're not going to worry whether what we've asked to do is going to be too much and we won't want to do it. Nothing of the sort. We know we're totally reliable and we won't forget. We'll do it. It's like having a rock-like quality. Independent of what we think our essential gratification might be. It may be quite uncomfortable to do something for somebody else. We may not have a great sensual gratification from it. Equally, we may have no sensual gratification from the fact of being faithful, but our sensual gratification is not the priority item on the list of a human being. Unfortunately, in most cases, it is that, but it doesn't make us a real human being. Faithfulness, reliability, and trustworthiness is the op are the opposites of this one to refrain from sexual misconduct. The fourth one is the one that's most easily broken, so easily that practically everyone breaks it without even knowing very often. It's to avoid wrong speech, which means to avoid lying, harsh words, backbiting, gossip, and idle chatter. Now that last one is the one that's <coughs> broken by practically everyone. Idle chatter means talking for talking's sake. Idle chatter is something that we do very often for entertainment. Now, it doesn't mean asking after somebody's health or well-being, because that denotes an interest in that person. But entertainment talk, just to talk, that's idle chatter. We'd be better off at that time to introspect. Of course, lying, harsh words, backbiting and gossiping. These are all connected with wrong speech. Opposite of that is, of course, right speech. Now, right speech does not mean 
to become an orator, to be able to give lectures. It has nothing to do with that at all. Right speech means that we have first thought along the lines of clear comprehension. What's the purpose of what I want to say? Is it a good one? Am I using the most skillful means? Have I got the right words on hand? Are these words and the purpose within the Dhamma, within the law of nature, within the truth? And then go ahead and do it, say it. And then if the other person gets upset about it, what happened? I didn't fulfill the purpose I had in mind. What did I do wrong? To recapitulate and see where one went wrong. It has happened to all of us, I'm sure, that we meant very well, well-meaning, and wanted to say something to somebody, and the other person couldn't accept it at all. Something went haywire. The Buddha has a formula for that. And I'd like to give you that formula. Some of you have heard it more than once, maybe. It doesn't matter. It's very important to remember it anyway. Formula goes like this. If you know anything that can be hurtful to another person and is untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that could be helpful to another person and is untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that could be hurtful to another person and is true, don't say it. If you know anything that could be helpful to another person and is true, find the right time. So, slowly, 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 catchy monkey. We need to think about what we're going to say. When is the right time? The right time is when both people are at ease, have time to listen to each other and particularly the right time has come when oneself has nothing but love for the other person. Because our communication with each other, strangely enough, is only 7% through the words. The rest is the um, body language, the facial expression, the tone of voice and the feeling behind all the words. This is one of the reasons, or maybe the reason, why in the Buddha's time people became enlightened after hearing one Dhamma talk by the Buddha. Now we are on tape number four, I believe. <laughs> just not the same thing. <laughs> so the right time to talk is when the feeling inside of oneself is one of love for the other person. When the feeling is one of trying to set that person right, I'm going to tell him or her how it really is, wrong time. Doesn't work. The other person is going to come right back and tell us how it really is. Only when there's complete feeling of lovingness and a wanting to share, 
are wanting to be together in heart and mind. That's the right time to speak. It's never right to say that which is not true. And it's very often only used as an excuse in order to bolster ourselves in some manner or form. And it always results in some difficulty, sooner or later. The way we speak is mentioned by the Buddha many times, not only in the precepts. It's one aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is one aspect of the Great Blessings Discourse because it is an activity that we do a lot. We talk a lot, and particularly with other people. And we often can make friends or enemies just through our speech. The fifth one, the fifth precept, is to abstain from intoxicating drugs and drinks. Because they confuse the mind even more than it is already confused. And the question and focus also on the people where we like to give it to. So it is a focus on a feeling. In a loving kindness contemplation, I will say a statement. And again, we will t go inside of ourselves to find out whether we have any personal relationship to this statement and then how we can change it into the positive, how we can actually work with it. So it isn't so much the focus, the one-pointed focus of a feeling, but it is an inner realization of what goes on within oneself and how we can alter it or connect to it. Again, the contemplation is for insight. The meditation is for calm, whereas the loving-kindness meditation also is very <coughs> conducive to calm and very conducive to that inner feeling of harmony, whereas the contemplation for insight. Again, I will say it, and you repeat after me, and then I will say something about it to help with the contemplation. In order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. 